This episode of Converge with my guest, Jeff Goins, is sponsored by WeaveWriter. WeaveWriter empowers you to write every day, tell better stories, and make every word count through the power of habit. For more information, check out WeaveWriter.com. Converge is my chance to connect with creatives who make really interesting things. And when they can, profit from those things, often in ways that might surprise you. My background as a photographer and author gets me in conversations with visual storytellers and writers, but also musicians, actors, business and thought leaders, basically people who work very hard, not just to make a buck, but also to make a point. The invitation is to understand a little more of the context that surrounds their work, and hopefully discover a fresh perspective that might inspire something new around the value you're making in the world. Jeff Goins is a Nashville-based writer, speaker, and entrepreneur. More than that, though, he's built a massive following around the skill set of writing. In fact, he was able to have over 100,000 people subscribe to his blog in less than 18 months. Now, why, why in the world would that happen? Well, the truth is, Jeff is an invitation. Anyone you talk to who knows him will tell you the same thing. He's inviting people into something bigger than themselves, and he gives concrete means or vehicles to do that. And and core to that is writing. We're going to talk a lot about that. But the reason I wanted to give this kind of an intro is I have a hunch as a listener, you guys who care about this convergence of making things and making something of those things. When you listen to the speaker, creative coaching consultant, you're going to find that Jeff is more than a doer. And I guarantee you by the end of this time, you'll be inspired in your own pursuits of the business of creativity in ways that are unprecedented. Art that doesn't have some sort of impact on an audience at some point doesn't fulfill its potential. I'm your host, Dane Sanders, and I want to welcome you to Converge. Jeff Goins, welcome to Converge. Thanks, Dane. Great to be with you. You know, we we had a chance to get to know each other uh, awkwardly on my part uh, entirely uh, a while back and when I reached out with an email. And since then, I've been following you for for a number of years now, but we have a number of common friends. Um, Yeah. I love that when, when I have a chance to bump into somebody who, you know, I'm a big believer that birds of a feather flock together and the people you flock around with are good people. To begin with, you know, you're around a lot of creative professionals in my industry around photography and you're also in a particular environment. Share a little bit about the world that you live in and and how you gain inspiration from just people right around your your back door. In this like really strange but amazing town of creativity that in many ways feels like a Uh, a small town that looks like a big city. There's interesting things going on in the world of technology, entertainment, and entrepreneurship. And for the longest time, I didn't take advantage of it. And I just feel lucky to finally open my eyes and go, wow, there are some really amazing people around here. And um, they're all within grasp of, of getting to know if I would just kind of put myself out there. And I feel like in many ways, I'm here doing the things that I get to do just because I finally said, okay, I'm going to try to get to know these people. And those relationships led to all kinds of things I never would have expected. Hmm. It's funny. One of our common friends, I think we've talked about in the past, is Jeremy Cowart. He's a photographer oh, yeah, in your right. neck of the woods. And and uh, Jeremy's a dear friend. And, and I remember him spending, he grew up in the, kind of the Nashville area, and then he moved to Los Angeles, which is where I live, for about a year. And then he kind of woke up and went one day and went, what am I doing? Like, And he kind of packed back up and went back to Nashville just because... 
it seemed the way he would describe it was this it, it, as you describe like it's it's a, it feels like a, a metropolis there's so much going on yet it's incredibly accessible he, that's how he describes it. in fact he keeps bugging me he says i should move out there i'm like are you kidding me i can't compete with these people like it's just <laughs> and i'm in la where you know traditionally people would say new york la is kind of a these are big yeah. cities, but right. man, it just per capita, it seems like you guys kill everybody. Nashville is just an extraordinary place. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's amazing. And I've lived here eight years and I read this article about it was sort of this like self-indulgent article about how Nashville became the it city. And, you know, it's talking about like the first Chipotle in Nashville, which was like a big deal. And this just happened a few years ago. But what was interesting is I was going through this. And I didn't, I never wanted to move. I didn't really even know anything about Nashville except that, you know, like country music or something, but I moved here to chase a girl. And, <laughs> and while I was here, I, I became aware of the fact that, man, there's a lot of stuff going on here, but reading this article, kind of plotting out the things that happened and when they happened, you know, including the opening of the first Trader Joe's and also some more significant things. I realized, man, a lot of this stuff has happened more recently, you know, in the past a decade or so. So um, yeah, I'm I'm really proud to be here, and it's a fun city to live in. I, I think for the reason that people, you know, at first glance, I mean, you can say L.A. or New York. Obviously, those are happening cities. Things have been going on there for you know a hundred plus years. But Nashville is, you know, people are starting to find out about this gem, kind of in, you know, the middle America, you know, kind of in the the southeast. And uh, yeah, it's a fun fun thing for me to for people to stumble upon that and go, wow, there's a lot going on here. And I think we'll see more of that in the future. So what I'd love to do, you know, a lot of the reasons why folks are tuning into this conversation is uh, they know who you are and the conversation in particular that we're in here in this space is around uh, making things and making something of those things, that convergence of creativity and commerce. And, and you have done that in the context that you're in, in, in Nashville, but you've done it to a, a global audience. I mean, a remarkable amount of, like a disproportionate amount of people are paying attention to what Mr. Goins is writing about in the South. And I'm struck by it. You come from, you're married to Ashley. Uh, you, yeah. have, you have a, you have a, a son and Aiden, you have Lyric, uh, your, your pet. And, and you guys, it seems like you guys are living a very global existence, but you guys are a very domestic family and you do all of your creativity at the core of it. It seems to be about writing. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your, your kind of day-to-day -day life. Uh, Cause I think, you know, outside looking in, it's kind of like, man, either Jeff has a team of about 800 people that he's just not talking about because the, the sheer volume of stuff that you put out is extraordinary. How do you work out your context uh, in real time? Well, thanks, first of all, for mentioning our passive-aggressive prima donna dog who um, ever, ever since we became parents has been, uh, you know, very uh, unshy about letting us know how he feels neglected. So um, I know he'll appreciate the, you know, the fact that we, re we remembered him on this podcast because <laughs> he sure doesn't get much clout anywhere else, unfortunately. I, lo I love you, Lyric, but um, come on, ease up, buddy. Enough with the whining. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> yeah, I mean... I uh, I think that you know what you're observing is in many ways a, a product of my wife's strong sense of you know our our family is is kind of the core of of what we do and she really keeps me and us as a family rooted in what matters most and that's sort of you know like a, a roundabout way of saying I am always on to the next thing always on to the next idea uh, and for ten years drove her nuts with the next big thing until. Um, I decided that I really wanted to get serious about writing and that tension of me going and trying to launch something and failing and then kind of, you know, crawling back and 
and and her, you know, very patiently and, and graciously waiting for me to grow up. It, it made me when I when I do try to do things, I try to take them seriously because a I want to make her proud, and and b I'm trying to stay rooted in the reality that at at the center of of who I am and what I do, I'm I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a guy that's you know trying to. Um, uh, live a good life. And out of that, you know, out of those, those values come all kinds of creative stuff. Um, but for, for the, uh, a while, you know, I kind of put the, the craft or the art ahead of, um, just like a, a well-structured life. And, and hear me when I say, I don't have a well-structured life. It's constant, you know, managing of, of tension, but any semblance of order <laughs> or organization, comes from, you know, utterly failing at that. And I, I love there's a, uh, a a section at the, uh, I think it's in the middle of uh, Stephen King's memoir on writing, which is obviously about writing. Sure. And he tells a story about like when he bought this uh, big oak writer's desk, this amazing desk that he spent, you know, years dreaming of, of owning, you know, which I'm sure was expensive. And he bought the desk and he put it right in the middle of his room and he wrote and he, and he remembers writing novel after novel, uh, addicted to this substance or drunk on that thing. And, and there are years of his life, there are, there are works that he wrote that he doesn't remember writing, all the while keeping his family on the fringes of his life until there were several, several interventions that kind of helped him realize this thing that, that I just thought, I love this quote. He said that he used to think that life was a support system for art, and then he realized that it was the other way around. Mm-hmm. And, and he sold that desk, and he bought a little desk, and he moved it to the corner of his room. And instead of this being this place where he shuts the door and is, it's off limits to his family, his office became this place where his kids would come play and his friends would come watch a movie and eat pizzas. And he'd write and stop and hang out with them and go back to it. And it was still his job. He took it seriously, but he understood the place of the vocation in kind of the order of the rest of life. And I don't say that in a way to like demean what I do or what you do because it's important work, but it is work and and it's a part of our existence and without the life to support that work and, and, you know, and, and to think of it really as the work supporting the life and, and that there's good, you know, cohesion here and convergence, you know, to use your word, Dane, it just all starts to fall apart. So all that to say the order of my day looks different every day, but I try to get up and uh, first thing I do is hang out with my son, feed him breakfast, uh, try to let my wife sleep in a little bit cause she's got the hardest job in our family. And then we kind of swap when she gets up and she, you know, hangs out and does stuff with our son all day. And uh, I have an office that I go to and try to, you know, not procrastinate and usually try to do a little bit of writing, a little bit of reading. And then the afternoons are, are dedicated to connecting with people. And, and I do have a handful of team members that I work with on, you know, various projects. It's all pretty, you know, ad hoc. In the beginning, it was all stuff that I did kind of um, on my own, had to figure out. But something that I'm learning recently is um, that I like being around people and I like doing things with other people. And so I'm actually disciplining myself to not do it all myself and to collaborate with the team, which is probably taking up more and more of my time, which could feel like a hassle. But but I'm actually really grateful for it because I'm getting to invest in people and, and, I'm, and we're getting to hopefully build something that's bigger than any one of us could make on our own. Mm. I like the way that you're framing. I mean, you're the boss of this thing. So it's striking to me that you're calling it a collaboration rather than, say, management or leadership. Do you see your team as as kind of integral partners to what you're doing? 
sure, I, I'm the boss, but I'm constantly asking them. I, I've got uh, you know a handful of people, including a, uh, an assistant and a project manager. You know, and then I've got some um, more like project-based people, like web, a web designer and a, a developer. And uh, you know, and, and you know, we're, we're kind of we'll bring people on to do a, a specific specialized thing, and then you know, end that project. But uh, I am regularly asking, "What do you think about this? Is this a good idea?" Because I am perpetually, as a creative, I'm constantly questioning my choices and going, "But we could do this, and we could do that, and we could do that." And this is um, like. I basically hired people because my wife was tired of me saying, you know, we could do this, we could do that. What do you think about this? And she's like, I don't know, just pick one. <laughs> but I do think of it as collaboration because I don't think that all of the best ideas are going to come from me. Right. And there are times when I go, you know, like I really think this is what we need to do. And I'm not shy uh, in terms of being a leader, but I, I do benefit a lot from having a lot of ideas and then having filters to pass those ideas through and and then to like consider the potential outcomes and i feel like our team does a really good job of that and like i said it's all very new um but i did have a season where it was just like total solopreneur and before i i did this which i've only been doing it you know about 2 years before i did this i was a marketing director for a nonprofit and when i was done with that i was like i am done with teams forever but after not doing it for a while i kind of miss collaborating with people and and there are hassles and you know challenges associated with it but I think the outcome is is worth it. Let's let's talk about those projects. There's so much in what you're saying, and I'm rapidly writing down notes, realizing it's totally in vain because we're never going to get to all the things I actually want to talk about. But we'll get to a handful, and I think that they could be very relevant for you folks listening at home. At core of everything you do, it seems like it's ideas wrapped with words. You're a writer, and it seems like out of the writing. Again, I'm outside looking in at this. And, and, and honestly, I, you've inspired me in many ways. Like I, I too, uh, spend a lot of energy around uh, writing every day. And, you know, we've both been coaches on Lyft, for example, around writing and published books and so forth. But at root, it seems to me, you create ideas. And out of those ideas, you create opportunity. And I'm wondering if that's the right way to think about it. Like, is, is that how you frame the, the product or the output that you create? Or is there another way to think about it that would be more helpful? Well, I'm, I'm not as self-aware as I should be. So anytime somebody goes, you, you, do, you do this, I go, hey, that, that sounds really good. So that sounds, that sounds really good, Dane. Uh, but before I did this, before I moved to Nashville, I was um, a full-time musician for a whole year, which I felt like was a long time. And then I moved to Nashville. I was like, I have a college degree and I traveled with a band. Man, I am so hireable. And, you know, that thought was quickly decimated when I realized, you know, every single waiter I had had 10 times, you know, the experience I had in, in music. But all that to say, I, I feel like, um, I feel like at the core, I'm a creative, you know, I used to draw and I was act, I acted in plays for much of my life. And, uh, I still love music and I'm a, a writer and I've always written. Um, uh, but I, I do a lot of these different things. And I, I still think a lot like a musician, especially when it comes to writing, like writing and music to me, there's lots of, um, crossover. So in terms of what I do, I, I love what you said to, you know, sort of add a texture to it. I would say that I'm constantly looking for resonance. You know, I, I think that for the longest time I thought about becoming an author. And in fact, I remember years ago, my wife bought a, her first DSLR and she wanted to get serious about photography. And she, um, she bought this book called the fast track photographer. And for, 
you know, like a year. I, that book was, um, you know, on our coffee table and she was reading it and learning things and applying them. But, you know, I would look at people that had published books and I'd go, what does it take to do that? What, you know, what does it take to do, you know, what this guy, Dane Sanders has done? And I think for the longest time, I just thought I have to be creative. I have to have the best idea. And if you have the best idea, the best idea wins. And I think that's a really nice idea. I think it's a, a pure idea in some way. But what I've learned since then, you know, I think about being a musician, uh, like an idea is like a note and a note in and of itself isn't enough. It's not music. Music is all of these notes put together and there's space in between them and you create chords and rhythm and, and you do all kinds of things with, with those notes. And if it's good music, it, it resonates, which literally means that it like, you know, moves something or someone. There's an effect. And so when I'm writing now, I think in terms of what can I create that feels right with me, that does resonate with me. I don't, I don't want to, um, I think it's very dangerous for a creative person to just do stuff for an audience without any attachment to the things that they care about. Cause that tends to feel like pandering, you know, where you're just kind of like, you're, you're chasing the dollar or the audience or the market. And there's money in that. There's, you know, there's, you know, there's a market for that. People do that. That just never felt right to me. And at the same time, it's kind of dangerous to just be the pure artist who just like does stuff in the corner and writes a novel and sticks it in his drawer or, you know, writes the song or whatever. And nobody ever interacts with it. And, you know, I feel like art that doesn't have um, some sort of impact on an audience at some point uh, doesn't fulfill its potential. And, and so when I'm writing or creating or, you know, and this goes for launching an information product, an online course, which is a very like commercial endeavor, but, all the while when I'm building this thing, I'm thinking, does this resonate with me and will it resonate with somebody else? And how do I, you know, do the best that I can to ensure that that happens? And really the only way to do that, as you know, Dane, is to try to do something creative every day and put it out there. Um, I love Austin Kleon, how he's really kind of popularized this idea of showing your work. Put stuff out there. And you'll see what begins to resonate and that'll give you an indication of what your voice is and how you can hone the thing that you do. And, and as he says, the only way to find your voice is to use it. And I love that. I do too. Stuff comes to mind very often uh, in my own life and certainly in this conversation is what I'm hearing you, you articulate is this notion of, you know, it doesn't really become art until someone appreciates it and like where there is that kind of resonance, whether it's myself or somebody else. Um, is that too strong a statement, do you think, or does that sound resonant for you? Somebody kind of reframed this for me, uh, and I would agree with this. They said, art isn't just the painting. It, it, it's, it's what happens between the artist finishing the work and the interaction that a person has with it. Like the art isn't just the thing that hangs on the wall. Like I could tell you what my favorite, you know, painting or movie or, you know, piece of music is. And I would say, I love this song because of this. And you'd go, wow, that's really interesting. I love that too, but I got this out of it. And I think what's in between that, what's in between you and, and the work, I think, you know, it's, it maybe sounds a little bit esoteric, but I think that's the art is it's the interaction between the audience and the work that you create. And that, as, as I'm finishing up a new book, that gives me comfort because I go, but it doesn't feel done yet. It doesn't feel right. I want to make it better. I want to make it perfect. And if I'm thinking of art as like the finished work and it living up to the ideal in my mind, which it never really does, then I constantly feel like a failure, you know, <laughs> and, and I'm not alone in that, I know. But if art is 
not so much that. I mean, it's it's that, but it doesn't end with me finishing the piece or you know book or blog post. That's sort of the beginning of it, and it ends when that connects with somebody on the other side of the screen or you know on the you know on, on the other end of the Kindle or you know whatever it might be. Then I can begin to become a little bit more comfortable with releasing my work as incomplete as it feels into the world, so that the art itself, like the the work of art can be done like it it can you know in some way fulfill its potential when it reaches those people so in a roundabout way well let's and we just have a few moments left and i want to spend some time talking about uh, this new book that's coming out the art of work and and by the way i there's been a handful of books recently that i, I you picked the per like I, I think about this all the time chris gillibo i think you know just came out with uh yeah the, the happiness of pursuit i love that twist right. i love yeah. uh, steve pressfield's uh, the art of uh, the war, the war of art, and I love what you've done here with the art of work. It's just such a great uh, invitation uh, for people to consider, you know, who they're becoming and and how do they how do they work that out in real time. And I'm wondering if you just give us a quick synopsis of that, and then I have a couple follow up questions about it. Sure. So, I mean, this is a book about finding your calling, about the reason that you were born. And what I try to do in this book is reclaim that word that has really depreciated. Um, you know, in, in the past, I don't know, century or so, which is the word vocation, which literally means to call. And, and it was historically used in terms of somebody feeling compelled to do, you know, some great task. And traditionally, you know, it was used amongst like clergy being called to, you know, uh, being priests or something. But really, the idea is this is a noble thing that you were born to do that, that, you know, something bigger and higher than you is compelling you to do it. And if you talk to anybody, I mean, anybody I know where I'm talking about what they do, there is this sense that um, like they weren't just made to do a job. Right. You know, so there's this tension between vocation and occupation. And this is a book that doesn't necessarily tell you do these five things and, you know, you'll you'll find it. But rather, here is the path laid out before you. And the good news is you're already on it. You're already moving on the spectrum, you know, of your life's work. And what I did was I interviewed a bunch of people and and kind of got, you know, some some snapshots of what it looks like to live out a calling uh, intentionally and practically without um, ignoring the mystery of it. And, and so this is a book that'll help you identify where you're at in the process because I do think you can be intentional about it and you can miss your life's purpose and, and, then, and then hear the next steps that you need to take uh, to know that you're kind of moving forward um, in the journey. Well, so here's my, my selfish follow-up because uh, I'm trying to work out my own art of work in life as we all are. And uh, in my efforts to kind of be my own personal guinea pig at trying to think through some new ways to approach things, one one approach that I, I've kind of come up against is the idea of creating um, in the flurry of like Monday morning. So Monday, I have this great, I'll come off of a weekend, I have all these great ideas of what I want to accomplish this next week. I'll wake up Monday morning and, you know, I'm one email away from nine hours of pain where, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, I like, what just happened? Yeah. I worked really okay. hard. I can't point to anything. So I, I got off of that train and got onto a... A separation. I created a firewall between my to-do list and my to-be list, and my to-be list kind of encouraged. Like it was kind of the daily ritual idea of like what has to happen if if these things happen every day, and I keep the streak alive, like Jerry Seinfeld suggests. That somehow yeah. that's going to kind of ground me, and then a lot of the to-do stuff will either go away or take care of itself, or I'll really only pay attention to things that I have time left over once the to-be stuff is done. But I'm wondering if if stuff like daily rituals habit how important are those kinds of like 
micro choices in life on this kind of pursuit of calling? Well, I, I think that um, for a lot of people listening to this, you know, in, in um, uh, sort of a post-industrial culture, as I think, you know, Seth Godin would call it, where, where we're, um, you know, we're beyond uh, the age of like subsisting and, and you know, we're, we're thinking about things like self-actualization. Like, how do I actually not just like survive and live to tomorrow, but um, feel like what I've done has meaning? All that to say, we say that, but in our culture, it's all about doing, right? And I believe that most activity follows identity, that like if you're going to do something, it comes from some sense of who you think you are, right? And, and you constantly see this in addiction. Uh, you see this in bad behavior that's you know repeated over and over again. It comes out of a sense of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm messed up here. I heard somebody talking about he was just so busy and he couldn't couldn't break this this um, you know busyness cycle. He kept overcommitting himself, and he's just too busy. He, he had 180 people that were reporting to him, this massive organization, and um, his his wife booked an appointment with him <laughs> with a therapist for him because she goes, "Your life is just unraveling, and you don't even realize it." So he goes into the therapist, and he goes, "Ah, oh, this is dumb. I don't want to be here, you know." But we're gonna talk about my dad or whatever, and and, and the therapist goes, "Why do you think you're here?" And he says, well, I'm here because I have too much things going on. My life is starting to fragment, and, and I'm aware of this, but I don't know how to get out of this. And the therapist just looked at him for a second, and he goes, so what's going on inside of you that makes you feel like you have to overcommit to things to gain some sense of self-worth? And he was like, oh, oh, my gosh. Okay. He goes, I feel like um, I have to earn everybody's approval. And as soon as I stop doing things, I, I don't have any value that I'm, that I'm done. And, and he's saying this and I'm going, yeah, I feel like that sometimes too. Like I'm constantly saying yes to things. I'm keeping busy with myself because I think that the identity, who I am comes out of all the stuff that I do. But we, but we just know, I mean, intuitively we know that's not true. I certainly don't believe that's true. And so I, I think and, and what I kind of talk about in the book and show with story after story after story is uh, finding your calling is really this lifelong process of not f not doing something. You know, your, a calling isn't something that you find or something that you go do. It's someone that you become. It's really about learning to re-engage what Thomas Merton calls the true self. When so many of us are living out of the false self, uh, which is this projection that we give the world based on what we think people will approve of when the real true self is hiding deep within us. So, you know, it, this isn't a book that's going to necessarily, you know, help you make a million dollars. Oh, pe although people are, are doing this when they kind of tap into their, no you know, God-given God potential, they're succeeding. But it is a book that that follows this process of helping you not succeed at the wrong things. Because there are a lot of smart people listening to this right now who have the temptation to do this thing or that thing or that thing. And I want for me and you and, and anybody to get to the end of our lives and go, I didn't run this race in vain. Like I feel good about the time that I spent doing the things that I, I did. And, and hopefully I'm leaving something behind for somebody else where they can kind of carry out, carry on this work. And that's, I think that's the idea of a calling is it's, it's ultimately something that's bigger than you. That's, um, that isn't just about what you do, but it's about who you are and who you're becoming and, and how you're making, you know, that contribution to, um, to the world.
This was episode 039 of Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. ConvergePodcast.com is our home where you'll find past episodes, including my conversations with Seth Godin, Chase Reeves, Chris Gillibo, Lisa Congdon, and many, many others. It's also where you'll find Go, our unconference for creatives looking to grow their business. Music today provided by TripleSkiMusic.com. Sound as good as you look. Thanks to Anna Cueza at acreative.co for her audio production. And a special thanks to Jeff for being with us. Visit him at goinswriter.com. Finally, we have some big announcements coming down the pipe in the next few weeks. We don't want you to miss out. So if you want the inside scoop, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. You can do that at convergepodcast.com. And not kidding, really good stuff. And it's reserved exclusively for those on the list. All right, fair warning. That's it for now. I'm Dan Sanders. I cannot wait until next time.